welcome to Garage Night. I am Randall. I'm Jeff. And I'm Andy. And this is the show where we talk uh, mostly automotive uh, and stray off into anything that has to do with a garage. Uh, we're going to kick off tonight with a uh, new vehicle from fabled Koenigsegg. Uh, Andy, you brought this to the table. Can you tell us about this monster? Well, nothing short of uh, the tradition for me of power. The new offering from Koenigsegg, calling it the Gemera. It's a hybrid, another supercar, 1,700 horsepower, four-seater. Are you kidding me? Another crazy offering. With a warranty. With a warranty. Wow, a two, a two plus two from Koenigsegg. Two plus two, and it's got a Tesla-ish style uh, um, center console kind of infotainment setup on it. One one big kind of screen. Wow, I love the lines of that. The kind of has the Ajera uh, wraparound windows, but it has that really sleek headlight design. Mm-hmm. Um, kind of follows up along the fenders there, and then the big hips in the back with the tail lights. They kind of tuck in. Almost looks a little like the um, the new Corvette um, in the tail light area, just a hair. Uh, way more aggressive, but very cool. If you look at the the inside view, even the back seat has its own kind of like center touchscreen kind of console setup in it as well too, along with cup holders, which you don't see in seventeen hundred horsepower cars typically. Generally, you don't. Uh, it looks very very interesting from the inside because it it definitely is still a supercar, but they do try to make it almost usable in the same way that the. NSX and the 911 kind of try to be an everyday supercar. This is certainly not something you could commute in, but it's more plausible. I, I love their attention to detail. You know, Koenigsegg is always uh, kind of top notch in that regard. You know, they have Alcantara and everything, carbon fiber, um, yeah, aluminum. Definitely, you know, definitely all of nice, nice finished product. Right. Yeah. I mean, to me, it looks a little busy with the carbon fiber, but I mean, when you're paying for that kind of car and that's the experience you're wanting, that's kind of kind of what it's about, right? If you're buying that much carbon fiber, you want to see it. Yeah. Yeah. Anyone else notice the uh, rear view mirror cameras with the little screens off to the side? Yeah. Yeah, it doesn't have uh, regular mirrors. It has little cameras and, and therefore little... Um, little TVs basically on the A pillars so you can mm-hmm. use your mirrors. I'm assuming that's more of a, uh, arrow thing too. Less weight, Certainly. less, uh, less drag, you know, having a big actual mirror out there and probably too, I, I would imagine I'm get. I should say, I'm guessing it's probably part of the way the car is designed. It's, it would be hard to kind of see that. Now what, what's going on on the back? There's the little green ball on the dash. What's that? The green orb, as I've seen it called. It's a it's supposedly a floating 360 degree camera. Really? Looks like a G meter, like it has 0. 0.5, 1, 2, 3. Maybe that records your G's. It could be both. Could be. 
they didn't talk about it much in this specific article, but I read another one earlier this morning that talked about the little floating orb on the dash a little more. 8,500 uh, RPMs is, is nothing to laugh at either. Not at all. That's that's singing at that point for that car. And on, on top of that, the fact that you can run in pure electric mode, mm-hmm. um, that's, that's just so good. Every time that I have to move my car just a few feet is especially when I wish I had something electric because I always hate starting up a vehicle because I know startup is the hardest on them. And then it doesn't get warm and then you shut it back off. It creates condensation issues in the exhaust. Like that's exactly, oh, well, I just got to move this over here or, you know, from a parking lot to a parking lot. Um, If you could just run on EV, that would make that all much easier. Right. I mean, the front seats we were talking about, um, they look pretty crazy, especially the model I'm looking at in yellow. Um, mostly black carbon fiber with little bits of black helicontra and, and yellow panels on it. They look uh, <laughs> crazy. They don't look like they would be allowed in a road-going car, and they're less than 38 pounds. That's that's a light uh, seat because that's, that's the kind of thing that adds up to being very heavy. Go out to your car and pull the seat out sometime. See if you don't need someone to help you pull it out. Right. If you go to if you if you went to the end of the the gallery, you've seen the cutaways of the the drivetrain. I I have not. It's an interesting, interesting kind of shot. You can kind of see the technical setup of the car. So it seems like the electric motors make up the first thousand horsepower. Um, That's insane. Just the yeah. <laughs> thousand horse out of the electric motors. Just the, just the first the thousand gas horsepower motor though. Makes up 700. <laughs> yeah. Just the, just the first thousand horsepower though. <laughs> Gosh. Cause there's multiple. <laughs> they have a tiny friendly giant engine is, is what Koenigsegg calls it. Um, and it uses that free valve technology that I think we, mm barely touched on a couple of weeks ago um you know i'll check out their youtube page because that's really fun uh, technology so that's only a 600 horsepower you know gas engine uh so i think the idea is that it creates so little um so little carbon you know carbon uh, co2 and stuff that it it uh it kind of offsets itself with the electric side of it because it'll run 31 miles all electric out of the battery which is which is right up there with a you know kind of a commuter plug-in um and it's flex fuel too so i mean you can run on co2 neutral methanol so between running on that and running on uh, all electric that you plug in if you're in a place that produces green power this supercar could be no dirtier than the Prius, you know, that you drive past. That's just insane to think about. Cause you know, you can't get your, uh, your Prius or your Volt to run on, you know, met- uh, CO2 neutral methanol. They're right. not designed for it. So you're right. still going to be burning fossil fuels. That's something I'd like to learn more about CO2 neutral methanol. 
should look into that. Uh, it sounds like a, it's not really a retro tech uh, segment, but we could yeah. definitely find a, a few minutes to kind of check stuff like that out. That and the free valve. Uh, right. It'd be kind of fun to see if we can articulate in audio, you know, uh, these uh, more challenging concepts. Right. The other little bit of Koenigsegg related news is they've released the the Jesco Absolute variant, which they're saying is the fastest road car that they will ever produce, and it's theorized to be capable of going three thirty. Three thirty. Yes. Now we're at like two sixty eight for the. Uh, Chiron, I believe, is the fastest currently, or was that the, no? The Gara R holds the record right now, I believe. Okay, and that's at like two seventy one, somewhere around there. Um, but either way, I know that it's it's been said that every mile an hour past two fifty has been an absolute fight. So to say that you can go an extra 60 above that and every mile per hour gets substantially more difficult than the previous. That just seems like so far beyond what we're capable of. So uh, when they say theorized, is this a car that they have developed and made or is this based on, you know, they can't find a runway long enough I don't know what the they've built the car. I just I don't think they've been able to test it yet. I believe it's you know in in modeling, you know in, in modeling software. I believe it's what they've said. They believe it will do three thirty, but they haven't had a venue to not be a able physical to, test, not to my knowledge. Because I know that's a big problem with testing. That is, you know, you would think well, just take it out to the salt flats, but the salt flats has its own set of issues, including you know wheel spin and. And the fact that you know they're disappearing um, altogether, but you can't always get top speed on that, and it's not the same as as on tarmac. And so right. then you're left with just a couple of options, like that giant two and a half mile banked loop that Volkswagen has. Um, and that's not even getting the high speeds where where they did the Agera R run was in the. Um, I believe it was like outside of Vegas. It's like a couple mile stretch that they closed down. Yeah. And then you've got a, you know, basically a public road that's, you got to count on the maintenance of the county to keep a road, you know, smooth enough that you can drive something, a road car that fast and not worry about your test driver getting, you know, eaten up by a pothole. Right. I wonder how long we can keep trying to push this envelope before everyone goes, well, fastest to 250 because we can't test much above that. I don't know if it'll ever go away. And that's just the nature of cars and horsepower. You know, it's always one-upping. Who can do it better? Who can do it faster? It's kind of, yeah, we've, we've kind of been entrenched in that for since the beginning of hot rodding, right? And cars, it's always about going fast. Yep. They said if you would go 100 miles an hour, your head would explode. Did they really? Oh, absolutely. It was, it was considered, uh, you know, like today it's like, well, you can't go the speed of light. Your body would, would absolutely just disintegrate into, into nothing. You know, there's no way to baffle yourself from the effects of, 
of faster than light travel, but in the early 1900s, it was said that you couldn't do 100 miles an hour. The human body wouldn't sustain itself, and it would your head would explode. All the all the blood would be pushed from your feet up into your head, and, and it would explode. Mm. So the first person to do that was um, was uh, you know quite a quite a feat. So we're in the same kind of spot where we go, oh, I don't know how we could. And now today you can get a 700 horsepower car with a regular driver's license. So, right. Now, uh, going from Koenigsegg, we'll go surprisingly down market to Aston Martin. Uh, you know, those, those budget cars. Yeah. That uh, we call, can all afford. Aston Martin made a new V12 Speedster just shy of a million dollars. This wow. car. A million dollars and no windshield. <laughs> That's extra. Cost, cost you the extra the extra little bit to get you to the million. Yeah, this is this is a, another bonkers car. It's got a 5.2 liter twin turbo V12, 700 horsepower, 555 torque, uh, regular ZF8 speed because apparently that's the only transmission the world makes anymore. Um, and it's just rear wheel drive. This is that's what's surprising to me. 700 horsepower, and it's not all wheel drive. Everything seems to be all wheel drive. The uh, Koenigsegg we mentioned earlier, of course, all-wheel drive, torque vectoring, all that. And this is just a rear drive, uh, you know, 0 to 62 in 3.5. Uh, says a top speed of 186. That's 300 kilometers, so that's probably a limiter. Um, but, yeah, it's it's kind of, I guess they grafted a DBS Superleggera to a Vantage. And... Um, they made this crazy, crazy vehicle. I mean, there's a post running down the middle of this vehicle between the driver and between the passenger. The yeah. That's that's some Batmobile stuff. If you even look at the closer picture, it's got like a fighter jet picture on it. that says, do not step. <laughs> yeah, people like that. The do not step, remove before flight. Yeah, uh, you know the the toggles with the safety switch over them. Those are, I mean, yeah. I love that as well. When you flip up the little red switch and then you hit the toggle, <laughs> that's always fun. Yeah, um, yeah. I guess they're making eighty eight of these. Um, and you mentioned a fighter jet, and it's inspired by it. They are going to have a specific spec that they're calling the FA eighteen spec. Um, that adds more of those jet touches to it. Interesting. Um, and it gives it a special extra loud stainless steel exhaust. So, oh, that's, I mean, that's if, right up, they know how to market to me. <laughs> yep. Should have just called it the Andy special. Yeah. Um, but yeah, this is, this is a gorgeous looking car. How is it that Aston can stay looking good um, with you know, arguably derivative designs. And, you know, there's a lot going on with this car. I know that I, I complained last week about the, uh, the the Toyota Supra and vehicles like that having too many gills and canards and cuts and scrapes. And this is very much that, but 
somehow it works. Am I, am I crazy? It, it, it kind of does. I mean, it's, it, it's busy, but it's very sleek at the same time, I think is why it works. And you know, I, I I'm going to make this reference and it's going to kill some people, but the wheels on it look like 99 Mustang GT 35th anniversary wheels. That's the only flaw in that car to me. Yeah, if, if if you know what you're looking at, I I definitely, I mean, there is only so many ways to make a wheel. Everything kind of looks derivative of like five designs. Yeah, um, but I definitely see what you're what you're getting at. I really like that car. It's a nice looking car. If you if you keep reading down, it looks like they're they made a couple comparisons to. Uh, one that I didn't even know they made, uh, the McLaren Elva is what its kind of competition is, which is McLaren's version of a you know two-seater open-top dine car. But the McLaren's like almost 1.7 million. Yeah, so this is bargain. Bargain compared to McLaren. So Jeff doesn't like new cars, but this is... I think still up his alley. Is it the attention to detail? Is it the, the kind of subtleness of it? Uh, what would you say kind of draws you in for your disdain of, of new vehicles? What is it about this that really calls to you, Jeff? Well, I can't say it really, I don't know. It doesn't, it, it, it does, but it doesn't, you know what I mean? Like I, I yeah. like, I like that they have the, so I just, what I like about Aston Martin is the same thing. I think, you like about Aston Martin. Everything's really well done. Um, everything's really kind of elegant. And, uh, you know, they kind of take grand touring to that level, you know, um, where you, it's just a nice experience to be in the car, right? You see all the, like the nice finishes in the interior and the exhaust note, and you're just out, you know, enjoying yourself. Um, you know, that that's kind of what it's all about. And they've really kind of cornered the market on that, in my opinion, where they've really you know, they really are true to that kind of, you know, pleasure driving experience, you know, doesn't have to be the fastest thing, doesn't have to be the rowdiest, doesn't have to be the best handling, but they just want you to have the best time in their car, you know, um, something you, you get with those high end manufacturers, you know, they tend to pay a little more attention to that kind of stuff. Yeah, it's the little things that that make the difference uh, in a vehicle like this, just if you, you know, you follow each line, each body line has a start and an end and it's going somewhere. There's, there's nothing, there's no abrupt cuts. Everything has kind of a, a purpose and a, and a language to it. Um, I really wish I had more to say on this vehicle because I don't want to click away from the gallery. Um, but I suppose if we're going to move on, we're not going to go far. Because um, the engine in this, this big, big V12, is, you know, the sound that comes out of a, a 5.2 liter V12 is just, it's music. Uh, but Aston makes a whole line of, of things and they've been using an AMG V8 for a lot of their, you know, their smaller cars, the Vantage V8 and and uh and those vehicles and i really like the amg v8s they sound raspy and aggressive 
But I guess uh, for various reasons, they're going to move away from the AMGs and start making in-house six cylinders um, for their, uh, for their uh, upcoming vehicles. Is that, is that kind of a step backwards with, you know, the kind of cool reception that uh, the V6s have been getting recently? Uh, I allude to the new NSX, the new Ford GT. Uh, A lot of these, V8 and V10 supercars that have been reimagined with these twin turbo V6s have have gotten kind of the cold shoulder from the automotive enthusiast group, uh, mostly for engine note. Um, are we going to see a little bit more of that here, or do we think that they know what they're doing and they'll find a way to make this V6 sound like something that everyone wants? Oh, I'm sure that's exactly the case. It's they know exactly what they're doing. It's not a, you know, lighthearted kind of a, we're just going to do it because thing. They, they are doing it fully well, knowing what they're doing. Um, I'm sure another reason, you know, going in-house is going to be um, ultimately probably cheaper cost-wise. You know, up front, there's more R&D and money into that. But you're basically, you know, you're renting out motors, you're renting out, technology from another manufacturer which gets inherently expensive too versus putting the money up up front yourself into your own r&d and your own manufacturing you know you're you're going to get a probably you know like a better you know more seamless product that way and not to not to have buried the lead but these are going to be hybrids um from from the news so i would think between the the electric part of the powertrain and the twin turbos that we're not going to be missing that that torque that the V8s always had because that was always the the problem in going down in in displacement and in cylinders as people would say oh it doesn't have the torque and the the get up and go of the of the V8s but between the electric motor takeoff and you know boost I don't think that's going to be a problem so we're kind of left with the with the the sound difference, uh, but this is going to be better on fuel, better on CO2, uh, and be lighter, of course, because there's you know less going on, though that might be balanced out by the electric uh, powertrain. Um, but they can centralize mass a little bit easier this way also, so a little bit better handling. What do you think, Jeff? Um, I, I think that it's a good trend, you know, like they're, they're trying to, uh, maximize, you know, uh, acceleration and power output and, and still keeping in mind efficiency, um, you know, just kind of the progression of, of technology in that way. Um, I think that it's kind of cool to see them embracing it rather than resisting it. Um, so, you know, I'm, I'm all for it. I think it'll sound great, you know, typical, um, Aston Martin, I think they'll, they're going to do a, a fantastic job on the engine note. Um, like Andy's Mustang that he had, uh, it's going to sound gnarly and, uh, and, uh, you know, kind of have its own unique thing. It won't be the old school kind of grand touring V8 snarl that they've had in the past, but I think it'll be a good sound that people will enjoy. Any further thoughts on, uh, Aston Martin? I don't think so. If not, we'll uh, we'll kind of go a little more 
a little less production, a little more political. Um, Fiat Chrysler is in trouble yet again as their sales chief has stepped down from his position at the company after suing them. Uh, I suppose that uh, the the big part of this is that Fiat has been massaging their sales figures a bit. Um, and he, uh, the, um, this sales chief has been cooperating with the, uh, with the fraud investigation that's open with them and he's claiming retaliation. Right. Yeah. So he, he's been cooperating, um, with their investigation, um, Long story short, uh, the FCA has been paying dealers to report fake sales numbers. You can see the obvious issues there. So um, he said he he didn't know about it, what was happening. When he did, he immediately stepped down because he did not want to get roped into it and went to the feds and said, hey, this is happening. You know, this needs to be looked into. And... FCA is retaliating, retaliating against him now. So good, good on him for, you know, pushing back against FCA for cooperating, you know, that's, it's a, it's a bum rap that FCA is trying to, you know, retaliate against him, but it's their own wrongdoing. Yeah, this goes, this goes pretty deep. Uh, so on top of the $40 million that Fiat Chrysler is going to have to pay to, settle with the uh, U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission, um, there seems to be uh, an even, you know, uh, yet another number they're going to have to to deal with, which is, you know, to settle with, with him because he's uh, protected under the Whistleblower Act, I believe, mm-hmm. um, because of the retaliation. And apparently they were withholding pays and and dividends and bonuses and uh all sorts of things to the tune of millions of dollars looks like they're withholding like 90 percent of his pay and whatnot for test because he testified which is highly illegal um right you know if if you see something wrong see something say something and uh, it seems like this guy who he's obviously very loyal to the brand he's been there for over 20 years um, but you know, when you see something like that, you, uh, you know, you can't, no reason to go down with the ship and he did the right thing. And for, for, uh, the company to go after him for it is, is not, yeah, not good. No, no. I mean, given FCA's history too, I'm surprised that they would try something that seems so blatantly stupid. You know, they have, they have a huge legal team, you know, what big company doesn't, you know, what, where, who thought it was a good idea to try this? Is this very far for, removed from why did Volkswagen, uh, you know, do what what they did with the diesel scandal? You know, you well, can no, say that probably, it was yeah, just same a couple kind of people, thing. but they showed right. that it, it was more than just a couple of people that knew. And you know, do they really have as much to gain as they did to lose? Was it worth the the risk? But you know, how many of these stories never get told? How many yeah. these have done? And that could that? that could have been exactly one of the arguments is it was cheaper to try and you know not pay him and have it not come out or something versus it coming out and obviously it's backfiring now, you know. 
Jeff, you're allowed. You're allowed to speak on this. You you can go. Don't worry about it. I <laughs> no, know you uh, probably worry about uh, going for the next twenty minutes, but go for it. No, I, I don't. You know, none of this stuff really surprises me these days. Um, the way people and companies behave is uh, can be pretty disgusting, and you know, from things that I know that you know. Um, I'm not going to, I don't want to throw any companies under the bus, but uh, there's definitely some, some of the things that I've, I've uh, seen, um, you know, just in the corporate world that, you know, where this kind of stuff, you know, happens and, you know, they expect people just to kind of play ball and, you know, ignore what's obvious to people. You know, you saw that with the 737 Max, right? Um, to yeah. Degree, probably to a lot lesser degree. Um, uh, or I should say a lesser degree in this case, but, uh, um, you know, uh, consequences aren't quite as serious for Fiat Chrysler, but, uh, you know, um, still seems like many of these people get out of, um, get, get out of this unscathed for the most part, um, tends to be what happens to the companies, you know, they, they tend to keep on keeping on and, you know, Oh, we got to pay a fine maybe. Yeah. So what we'll, you know, we'll, we'll continue just like Volkswagen did that, that shit with the, uh, the emissions thing twice, right. They got caught twice doing it. Um, so to see Chrysler and Fiat doing this, I don't know, doesn't, doesn't shock me that much. I'm, I'm continually disappointed with, uh, with our car companies until, I see something that impresses me. So, um, yeah, I don't want to get too negative. So, <laughs> <laughs> no, this is, you know, when you see something like this, it's, it's a major bummer. A few years ago, we had, um, the recalls that came through around 2016 and 17. And, you know, there was a few of them with the ignition from GM and, and that kind of became this cascade that I remember, following automotive news and every day there was another recall from some automaker to some extent. And, yeah. you know, I thought it would never end. And it seems like the last two years, there's been a lot of, a lot of whistles being blown uh, for more of this kind of scummy, uh, you know, business being done. You know, I love, I love automotive companies. I love when they take chances and they make something cool, but that should never be to the detriment of anyone. That's, that's never worth it. Yeah. I, I watched uh, last night for the second time. Uh, now I watched Ford versus Ferrari, which by the way, dude, you're like 40 year old, older than yourself. Doppelgangers in that show. I swear. Uh, the guy who plays <laughs> Phil Remington looks exactly like you, Randy, if you were like 30 years older. But anyway, um, <laughs> when you watch that movie and you see some of the scummy things that Ford does back in the 60s where they're like, you know, you know, Ken doesn't really seem like the kind of driver. Ken Miles doesn't seem like the kind of driver that's a Ford driver. We want a Ford driver to be representing Ford, mm-hmm. you know, that kind of shit. That shit happens all the time in the corporate world that kind of like get on board with what we're doing. And that's not even illegal. Like that's just gross, gross stuff that happens in, uh, in companies. But, you know, then you get into, you know, more like you're saying the scandals we're seeing where, where safety risks become a cost benefit analysis 
um, rather than a, hey, this is wrong, let's fix it kind of thing. Like, hmm, how likely are we to get caught? Eh, if it only affects 100 cars, who cares kind of thing. That whole attitude, that's not okay. Like, you know, we companies should hold themselves to a higher standard than that. Um, but they continue to not do that. And we've seen it from even some of the most advanced companies like Boeing and, uh, you know, down to, you know, uh, uh, Chrysler and, and uh, Volkswagen, you know, you, you see it all over the place. And uh, it just, it, it puts a bad taste in your mouth that you really can't trust um, these companies anymore to have your best interest at heart. And you have to be the one doing that research to, to understand the, the dangers of some of this stuff. But, you know, I, I, I don't know. It, it's just, it's frustrating. I'm going to ramble if I keep going on about it. So, <laughs> well, we can, we can ramble right over to one last thing. I kind of want to transition. We're going to transition from news with one last story kind of over into what we've been doing. Uh, Cause I see an opening for a segue and there's a civic 2011 civic that went a half a million miles with no major repairs. Um, and that's that's always fun to see these high mileage vehicles um, show up because, you know, I don't think I'll ever get a vehicle to a half a million miles no matter how long I live. I just I want something different too often and I don't, you know, commute that far. Um, but this this guy has made it 500,000 miles. Um and so this is just a standard four-door LX sedan, just a 2011 Civic, no big deal. Uh, the current owner got it with 32,000 miles. Um, and one thing that always shocks me is to hear how well or not well they're maintained. On the upside, he drains and fills the coolant and transmission fluid every 40,000 miles. That seems like he's very much up on it. But the oil changes every ten to 12,000 miles. Wow. Yeah, so that's that's uh that's a long way between oil changes. I've done that a time or two, um, you know, an 8 to 10,000 mile oil change and I know my uh, BMWs are made to do that, but a Civic I believe has a 3 to 5,000 mile recommendation, but right. see if you otherwise take care of it, it'll go half a million miles with no major problems. You have to wonder how, how, how it's driven to, you know, what's I'm, I'm going to guess, you know, no major repairs. I'm guessing, you know, you're talking a freeway car, probably. Oh, certainly a 2011, it's only nine years old and he's put that many miles on it. Exactly. That's an average of 50,000 miles a year. That's a lot. It's, Usually yeah. free, freeway salesmen, they go up and down yeah. the interstate yeah. doing sales calls. Application engineers, guys that go on site to different different uh, um, companies, you know, uh, we had to deal with those uh, when I was at Boeing for a while. You know, they would commute to Boise and then the next day they'd be in, you know, uh, Seattle and the next day in Portland. So they were always racking up these miles on these cars. You're talking an average of 152 miles a day. That's Every insane. day. That's Christmas. Wow. 
Oh, my mom's a 92 Camry. That thing has 240,000 miles on it. That thing's been a little champ, dude. No real problems. This was kind of my thought as we could segue into kind of the, the, the highest mile vehicles that we've, that uh, we've been around. Um, I think we touched on this early in the, in the run of this show and all of us kind of agreed that Jeff's Bronco was the highest mile vehicle we've, we've driven, but um, yeah. other than that, I mean, I think we've all driven more than a few vehicles that are over 200. Uh, my parents have a, 1997 Ford Expedition, uh, 5.4, hateful vehicle. It's um, <laughs> the devil. But the thing's got over uh, over 230. Uh, my dad has a 2006 uh, F350 King Ranch long bed, big, big sucker. And he drives that down to California and back every year. It, it tows his, his fifth wheel and his four-place snowmobile trailer and uh, four horse trailer and it goes down and gets uh you know a few tons of hay every once in a while um and that thing's well over the 300,000 mark now and that's a 6 liter diesel um the highest i have is um my my truck is is technically the highest with 172 i believe that's my highest mileage vehicle that i own and that's just an 04 ranger no big deal, but you know, it's, it's feeling a little tired. Uh, the super duty has had quite a bit done to it. Nothing's broken per se. It did blow a fuel line off at around the 200 mark. Um, but short of that, it's just been, you know, turbo needed rebuilt, um, you know, injectors eventually started to wear out, but nothing catastrophic. Um, so how about you guys? Have you guys, uh, owned or driven a lot of vehicles, over the 200 mark? Um, I guess for me, uh, just, uh, let's see, I guess, uh, well, <laughs> my Bronco is the only one really, I guess it's over 200 that I know of anyway. I, I don't really know the miles on the Falcon. I just know that it's, uh, reads 77 on the, on the, on their 78 on the cage. And I'm guessing that's rolled over at least once. Maybe it's more, but, uh, yeah, the Broncos just coming up on 400 and uh um mustang i think is right around 180 178 something like that and so then, it's getting uh, close yeah it's it's getting close to that 200 mark and but you've uh, had that one since pretty low miles right the mustang yeah i got that at 103 so i put you know 70 80,000 on it um and then uh the chevy i mean i have no idea i think that based on this the locked up engine that i pulled out of, or that was sitting on the side of the car when i got it um I'm guessing that maybe didn't even turn over once. So it was at 86,000 miles when I got it. So it's uh, it's actually a nice low mile original car. Yeah. <laughs> 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 um, but yeah, no, I, I'd say the, the Falcon's getting up there. Um, it's about the same as the Mustang in mileage as far as, if I were to guess, I'm guessing it's 177. It might be two. I don't know. But uh, um but yeah, the Bronco is definitely the highest for sure for me. Um, I, I think my dad's 07 Tahoe, he's getting close to 200 on that now. Uh, but I did see a guy. So uh, I was at my uh, my dad's, uh, the mechanic, he takes his um, his Tahoe too. Really good dude. Um, uh, he, uh, 
he had a uh, suburban in there, uh, like a 07 or 09 suburban with like 700,000 miles on it. It was crazy. And, uh, it, uh, I, I don't know. Spent on gas. <laughs> yeah. Right. Uh, plenty, I'm guessing, but it had a little five, three in it. And, uh, you know, he had, he was in there for, I think a steering rack or something, but like, I think at that mileage, you still end up just replacing stuff because it just, it just wears out. Like I've had to deal with that with the Bronco. Like it's not, it's not a failure in, in a sense of like a part broke. It's like, Oh, it's, it's so worn out. Like my hub no longer has a tolerance for the, for the bearing. Like I have to only last so long. Right. Yeah, exactly. And it's not, you know, it's not like I had a catastrophic failure or anything, but it's, it's just where, you know, like it's just where, and uh, you know, I don't know. It's just kind of interesting, you know, when you get to that age of vehicle, you start replacing things because they're just, they're just tired. There's been around and been used a lot, you know? So some things are meant to wear out. Some things are, you know, cars are generally meant to be thrown away probably before that point or traded in for something new. So, um, you know, you start replacing things and that that's where you get a lot of like the, Oh man, uh, old cars are unreliable. Well, if they got a lot of miles on it, you know, that's just, stuff gets worn out and you got to replace it, you know, you take care of it when you can, but how about you, Andy? What you got, you got some old high mile cars getting there. The, let's see the sixer, I think was about, I want to say 170, 180, maybe when it made its demise, um, the focus, which I think the focus is 175 now. Um, Cobra is about 140. Um, 140 on, I should say 140 on the, basically on the, um, you know, the sheet metal and whatnot. The whole drivetrain was swapped in at like, I think it was like 75,000 miles on it and then it was swapped out. And... Tucson didn't make it that long. We only had the Tucson a couple of years. The Mazda that we've got now has just turned to 60,000 this week. And I think the Escort, I think the Escort was probably about 180 as well. All right. Well, that's uh, going from high mileage vehicles to our high mileage vehicles. Um, what's ever been, everyone been up to with their vehicles? Uh, I put up a, a picture of Jeff's Bronco. He's getting that ready for paint. Do you want to tell us about the uh, process for that? <laughs> sure. Um, so uh, I've been talking with this guy here local that is going to paint my Bronco. And uh, he, you know, when I first talked to him, you know, he said, oh, yeah, you know, I'll, I'll take everything apart, you know, yada, yada. And the more I thought about it, you know, I'm like, yeah, you know, I'd really like to be the one to take everything apart, make sure it's all good. And I could take the trim off. I can polish it up, you know. Do, replace the interior, put it back together, make sure everything's exactly up to my standard, you know, not, not, um, just kind of go at it willy nilly. So I, uh, <clears throat> took, started this week. I started taking everything apart. You know, my, my interior's completely gutted now. Um, there's not even a dome light in it. Um, uh, which is kind of like your bullet. Um, <laughs> oh. Ooh. um, anyway, uh, so I, uh, today I started pulling off all the, uh, the side, um, moldings and trim and 
uh, wheel arches and grill and all of that stuff. Um, so it's, uh, it's starting to look like a Franken truck here pretty soon, but I'm leaving the taillights and the headlights in just so I could drive it to the place. Um, but yeah, other than that, it's pretty well stripped and, um, it's pretty sad when you're, when you're taking some of this apart and you've got this, you know, uh, 40 year old, uh, plastic, um, you know, like marker lights and taillights and stuff. And as I was pulling everything apart, you know, I'm like, I think it was my passenger side front marker light just disintegrated as I pulled it apart, like just, just ripped into pieces. And, uh, it's weird. It's like, it's like the old plastic expanded or something just weird. And like, the, like the taillight, it fits so tight. You had to like pry it out on one side. The other side wasn't like that, but the, the passenger side, the taillight had to pry it out. And, uh, and that one already was kind of shaky anyway and had some breaks and cracks in it, but it just, it just, uh, it just cracked and split all over the place. It was just, you know, one of those things that, you know, you're, you're taking things apart and you're just like, well, I guess we're replacing that, you know? Um, but uh, surprisingly, you know, that the little clips that they use to hold the trim on the side, um, they're actually plastic. And it looks like somebody basically put these nails in um, the door and that's how they are held on. So they got these little little studs that poke out like a quarter inch, eighth inch, something like that. And uh, these little plastic clips then snap on to those little studs and uh, and then the, the trim snaps on at those plastic pieces. But anyway, those were like super pliable like i don't know what material they were made out of that was different than what the uh the the housings of the bezels were but uh it's amazing how well those and how pliable those still were so um maybe it was the uv exposure was pretty low um but yeah so that all seemed to um, come apart pretty well um so yeah so it's kind of exciting to get that thing painted so it's going to be uh repainted the same uh color uh it was previously uh painted kind of keeping it um you know, true to, true to how it always has been and, um, how I've always remembered it. So, uh, you know, and, uh, get that thing all kind of nice and dialed in and, um, that'll be, it, you know, it's, it's kind of funny, you know, how daunting the Chevy was, this is way less daunting to me. It seems like it, everything is really easy to take apart, easy to, to get to, like it, it's, it's, a little bit easier of a project and of course there's not any rust which is super helpful but um you know it, it's helpful when you have a vehicle that's complete and you're taking it apart and then putting it back together so you're like oh that's where that goes that's how that piece goes in you know and uh you're not figuring it out as you go kind of like i do with my chevy where you're like i have no idea how this went together because there's nothing here so um it's a little it's less daunting a, a puzzle with a box and without a box yeah, or a puzzle with all the pieces versus a puzzle that, you know, has half the pieces and you have to figure out the other half of the pieces. <laughs> oh, so someone just gave you a bag with, with most of the... Here, I think this is most of a puzzle. Figure out what it is and then just draw the rest. Pretty much. Yeah, that's pretty much it. You know, Chevy, it had most of its parts, but, you know, like uh, uh, there's still some stuff that was just a lot of stuff that was missing that you just kind of had to figure out as you went and... A lot of stuff, the way they did things in the 50s is not nearly as intuitive as you would think, um, you know, compared to how they did things kind of in the in the 70s. Um, you know, I was I was really surprised, you know, uh, I was expecting that all of the trim was going to be held on with barrel nuts. And, uh, you know, I was going to have to pull the inner fenders out and get my wrench up in there. And it was actually a lot easier than that with those plastic clips. I was like, I was dreading that. And then I pulled it apart. I'm like, oh, that, that wasn't so bad. So um you know 
I find trim one of the trickiest things to to really when you take something apart. I took apart. I've taken a lot of vehicles apart. I haven't put any together, but I've taken a lot apart. Um, the murder of old cars. Yeah, I I promise I won't do it again. I'm I'm reformed. Uh, but I had a an '89 notch. None of these were going to see the light of day before I touched them. Um, but I had an '89 notch back Mustang that um, was supposed to go race car until um, you know I, I found a, a better use for it. But uh, so I started you know taking the interior uh, apart, just unnecessary things, and I needed to get into the into the dash to because uh, we we're going to do a motor complete motor swap. And just trying to take one thing apart, it's like, okay, well, I don't know where the pins are that, you know, push this here. And then you try and pry this up. Oh, this is held down by this. How do I get that apart? Well, I got to get this weird bolt that's down in here. And I got to have uh, two wobblies and two extensions. And and it can kind of become a, a, a real mess real fast just getting trim pieces off oh, without yeah. snapping them. Yeah. Uh, when I when I refurbed all the trim on the Mustang, it was actually a lot trickier to get off than the trim on the Bronco or even the trim on the Chevy. Um, you know, it had like a keyhole style um, on the on the side rails, so you'd like loosen it um, a certain amount and then slide it forward and then pop it off. And then the other ones they had, uh, you had to use a trim removal tool to pull it all off and. Um, of course, you know, it's really cheap pop metal. So, you know, it's very easy to break it and, uh, you know, it's just, you know, I don't know. For me, the, the pressure, the, the, the pressure on me when I put the, the plastic trim removal tool in, into the slot, just like it says on, you know, you watch the YouTube, you, you search on the forums and they tell you how to do it. They show you how to do it. But when I get the tool in and I start prying and I start hearing that plastic creak and mm-hmm. bend and bow, I'm, I always end up chickening out. I've, you know, I've got a project to do on the X5, but I can't get myself to, to do it. Andy's laughing because he's done this, this is child's play. He's done, <laughs> I'm, you know, I'm laughing because I remember when you had me take the, the bezel off of your shifter and the bullet and you were cringing the entire time. I was having kittens. You were. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Yeah, it's I'm, one of those things that sometimes moving faster is better. You just you kinda just yeah, same thing with like pulling off a door panel, you know, you just kinda yeah. pop it. You know, you just the, if you if you go slow, you're gonna bend things and then yep. you're gonna have problems. So you just kinda gotta just hit it real quick and then those uh those little teeth on the cliff <laughs> they, they pop past through their hole and then you're good to go. But it's really hard to get over that first kind of anxiety of pulling them loose. When when you're pulling trim off of a BMW and you know exactly how much they want for that tiny piece of plastic, it makes your heart palpitate a little bit. Right, right. Yeah, there's enough of them in junkyards, though, dude. You can, yeah. uh, you know, because those cars never make it, you know. <laughs> yeah, thanks. Um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Notice I didn't mention either of my BMWs in the high mileage uh, stuff. Not that, <laughs> not that the five series isn't high mileage, but I'm not going to uh, jump into that specific ring um, at this point. But yeah, you are a brave man for taking apart, uh, you know, all that, all those pieces on that on that Bronco, because you have 
how many of your vehicles you have four how many are together right now uh one all of half? them were together were i mean it, it, you mean are you saying like complete because i mean the chevy interior is is lacking but it's drivable and i drive it um falcons together now i wasn't last week but it is now um, okay and the mustang as i found out this weekend uh is not uh current on its registration which i did not realize i had uh, missed that somehow in uh... that's what that's what happens with fun vehicles like that and i'm sure andy if he hasn't run into it will very soon where if you stop driving it you don't think about it and then you're like you get the thing in the mail and you're like oh that's right yeah i gotta do that but then you don't think about the car for another two weeks because it's just in the garage and it's wow. winter ask me how i know and yeah. ne- next thing you know, one of your buddies goes, hey, bud, your registration's almost two years expired. How would you look at that? Yeah, I, I know mine's expired on the Mustang because, or I should say on the Cobra, because I haven't started driving it until recently. And it's been expired for almost two and a half years by organ plates. And I haven't got Idaho plates yet for it. I know. Yeah, it's just it's just not not one of those priorities. And, you know, it kind of sucks it's like well i didn't i just register this like three thousand miles ago yeah and then you left it in your garage (laughs) right but um have you uh you've been doing much much else there jeff or or mostly uh focused on the bronco this week um yeah it's been focused on the bronco i uh i went to go start my mustang and it had a solid dead battery not even a spark of life in that thing and didn't even six, click. No, it didn't. It, it it like the light dash lights like kind of dimly came on. I'm like, oh, this ain't gonna this ain't gonna work. So I pulled the Falcon up to it and I tried jump starting it and it wouldn't even jump. Um, so I uh, I pulled the battery out and stuck it on the charger for a couple of days. My like 1940s battery charger that has a six volt and a 12 volt option. <laughs> Ooh, fancy. It's pretty rad. It's pretty sweet. Um, it's probably maybe like sixties, but, uh, anyway, yeah, I, uh, I let that thing run for a, a few days until the battle battery was bubbling in there, you know, and it was about, I think it was reading about two amps and it's a four amp charge. So, um, I got that thing all hooked up and, um, felt was feeling good, you know, Mustang started up and I'm like, oh, sweet. I, I should probably go drive it. And, uh, of course, you know, my four mile loop, uh, there's a cop, uh, on the way, on my way out. And I'm like, okay, I'm not going back that way just because I'm like, you're in a Mustang. They always like to sweat you. At least they sweat me all the time, always trying to pull me over for some. I mean, even I was with Andy once and we were just driving around at night and we got pulled over because my lights were too bright and there was no one on the road. Like I get pulled over all the time in that car. That's the racing stripes. It is. It's so stupid, man. And, and, you know, it's funny. I brought it up to the cop when he pulled me over and he is like, I don't appreciate you insinuating that I'm biased or whatever. I'm like, I didn't mean that dude. I'm just saying like, I always get pulled over in it. It's a sports car. It's what happens. Like, but, uh, anyway, so I passed the cop and and I'm still on my loop and I'm like, okay, I'm going to go a different way. And I come back a different way. Um, and he is at a different intersection, same cop. And, and he, pulls out behind me and pulls me over and I'm like, Oh great. This is awesome. And he's like, dude, your registration's like a year expired. I'm like, Oh, what really? I'm like, it must've fallen off. Cause I'm like, I usually am always, and he's like, no, it's in my system is, you know, a year expired. I'm like, I'm on top of my cars all the time. Like 
I have no idea how that happened. Yada yada. He he comes back. He's like, I know. I see a lot of people in that, and I you know I know when people are lying, and I think you're lying to me, and I don't appreciate insinuating that uh, you know you uh, you thought I was being uh, prejudiced against a sports car driver. I'm like, all of those things, huh? That's what you got from my conversation. Great. <laughs> like you obviously That's don't know me. I appreciate you assuming how I am and who I am. Like. Anybody who knows me knows that's not me. Like, I don't mess that up. I'm, I'm not a liar. And I, it just irritated me more that he called me and, and, and called me a liar and, and insinuated that I don't, like, care about my – because I, I really do. And I know you guys know that about me. And uh, anyway, he let me off with a warning. He's like, part of my job is to educate, yada, yada, yada. I'm like, all right, whatever. So I went and parked it, and I'm going to try to handle that this week. But that – was my excitement for this weekend, and it really frustrated me. Yeah, <laughs> yeah that that'll happen sometimes. I've I've been uh, I've I've had some weird luck with registration. Uh, on one hand, you know the Mustang, I I ended up having to daily it for a while, so you know it's it had sat in the garage for so long, barely getting driven, and then I was alerted to the. Uh, to the, the bad tags and it took me a few months to get around to it uh, and never got pulled over for the expired tags. And I probably drove, you know, 1500 miles, no problem. And then I got that taken care of. And then a few months later, our daily driver, uh, my wife and I is a uh, black Ford escape. Uh, I'm like, Oh, well the tags are getting expired. So I went and got it DEQ'd. Uh, and then I went to, um, do the, the tags and, um, I, I've got it all in the envelope because I just decided to mail it all in. Um, uh, cause I, for one reason or another, I couldn't do it online. Um, so I'm like, okay, no problem. So I had it in the car and the tags expired on like Monday and on like Wednesday, uh, I have the, the registration paperwork in the car ready to send in and get new tags and uh we get pulled over two days expired uh my wife and i get pulled over in the escape and he tells us you know you know your tags are expired i said yeah bud by like two days like i'm like i have it deq'd it's in here and he's like you know i could give you a ticket just for this and i'm like and i would like you to not like we were very clear with him like Yes, we know. Yeah, we are two days expired. You could give us a ticket, but in this envelope is the thing. Like, it's ready to go. Just has a stamp. It's ready to go. We just haven't dropped it in. But, you know, you can definitely guarantee we had it in the next day. So, <laughs> for sure. Yeah, he, he, he let us off with a, with a warning. Um, but I don't know how I can get away with it for months at a time on some vehicles. And, yeah. You know, like as a matter of fact, my dad's King Ranch hasn't. When he bought it in 2005, it had uh, it was a demo, so it had a whole bunch of stuff on it. it had 20 inch chrome wheels, and it had a big uh, push bar on the front, big chrome push bar, and uh, billet grill and stuff. Now that big bull bar covers the front plate almost entirely. He's been driving that that way since late 2005. He has never been pulled over for it. Never. <laughs> and I've been pulled over seven times in my Mustang. It's because it's a non-assuming truck. It doesn't look like it's like you're, there's not a real reason there. 
you know, they're not looking hard at it. I mean, it was a bro dozer in 05. So. Oh, sure. How many times have y'all been pulled over? Enough. In which vehicle? <laughs> yeah, yeah, right? Yeah. Uh, the, 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 only, the only tickets I got, ironically enough, have not been in the Cobra. Whoa. I've got a, I got a ticket in the Fiat. I got a ticket in the Escort. Um, <laughs> I did get I did get one ticket in the Mustang, but that one got that one got rescinded. See, I've I've gotten two tickets, and one of them was uh, one was speeding when I was seventeen in my Ranger. Um, you know, typical, just doing fifty five and a forty five. Pulled me over, read me the riot act for doing like nine over. Uh, went to diversion, blah, 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 all that sort of thing. And then the other one was um, I didn't have, I got, I got pulled over in reality because it was two o'clock in the morning. I was leaving my, you know, girlfriend at the time, my wife's house um, at two in the morning in my Ranger. And for this cop to get close enough to me, I guess, to read my plate, he was on my bumper going through a construction zone. And so I was doing 20 and then I couldn't see his headlights anymore. That's how close he was to my bumper. And so I accelerated away to get him to get just so that I could see his plate. Couldn't tell it was a cop. I'm like, you're too close. So I accelerated up to up to 30 to get away from him. And he lights me up, pulls me over. I explain what I did. And he kind of went my bad, which is the only time I've had a cop do that kind of take ownership for his like, yeah, I guess I was a little little close, and he explained he was trying to read my plate, and the way it was tipped, it was hard to hard to read. I said okay, and he said, but I needed to see your license and registration, and my insurance card that I had with me was expired, and at the time, the state of Oregon didn't allow you to use uh, any electronic insurance proof, so I couldn't show him on my phone. I told him I'm like, I know it's. I know it's good. I just don't have the physical paper. It's all the same account, same policy number. And he said, yeah, but you need the physical paper. And he said he couldn't, couldn't let me off with that one, but I could take, I could take in proof that I had insurance at the time in. So I still had to go to the judge, sit through everyone else, uh, you know, arguing why it was okay that they ran the stop sign. Uh, and then when I went up, uh, uh, the judge who had been, very hard on everyone. No one got off of their tickets, not a single. There was like 12 people in front of me that day. And it got to got to me. He called me up um, and, uh, and he said, hold on, hold on. There's a note here. And he started reading the note that the cop said that he was going to leave. Got a really sour look on his face, said, do you, do you have proof of, of insurance at the time? I said, yes, the bailiff brought it up to him. Then he looked almost angry at me and he said, get out of here. And he just told me to leave. And I'm like, okay. And then being the confused 20 year old that I was, I said, do I still go pay the court fee? And he said, get out of my courtroom. Okay. So I just left. (laughs) (laughs) And that is the long story of why you still have an active warrant. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) That you won't know about for another five years. Right, I mean that was nine years ago now. Yeah, uh, yeah. Is that your I last did. Ticket? I did check on on the way out, and she said, 
if he said to leave, just leave. He's like, you'll, she's like, I guess you'll get a letter if we want to do something different. But he said, if, if, if this is right, then you don't even owe court fees. So I left as quickly as I could. Um, <laughs> right. That's, that's really all I've had for tickets. I got pulled over once in the Mustang. Um, but uh, again, it was another suspected DUI stop. You know, you know when they are, it's 1130 on a Friday. Oh yeah. Uh, I've, I've had, car. I've had that stop on, on the, on McLaughlin at probably 1130, 12 o'clock at night getting McDonald's and that friggin' HID burnt out of the, the headlight and the escort. Yep. Yep. And they, they pull you over, they flash their light in, in, they see that your eyes aren't red and you're completely with it. And then their shoulders kind of drop and they're like, Oh, bummer. And bummer. Run we your can't stuff ruin and, this person's life. <laughs> yep. like, well, I can't help you with your quota today, my man. You should have seen me three hours ago. That happened with uh, me and Andy one night when I was taking him home in the Mustang. I don't know what the hell we were doing. We were up in uh, Happy Valley uh, checking out the new. That was your. That was because we had the HIDs in your car with no glare shields. Yeah, but I no one was that. around. There wasn't a single. Nobody was around. We literally turned up a road in Happy Valley to go up. Um, it was a new development. So there was only like one house, one or two houses at the, at the, like the start of this road that goes up into one of the hills in Happy Valley. And we were going to go up there and snap a couple pictures of Jeff's car. Cause we just got the lights in it and whatnot. And there's a good viewpoint of the whole Valley up there. And little did I know at the time that there was some, uh, mischief going on up there at the water tower up at the top of this viewpoint. And so the local police were hanging around there and we just happened to make the wrong turn at the wrong time that night. Yep. Yeah. I mean, I don't think, you know, none of us have been pulled out of our cars that we've, you know, if we ever caused trouble, we never got caught for it. Um, and you know, I'll, I'll say we've kind of flung some crap. I'd say most cops are just fine. They're just doing their job. Um, there are some that are, you know, I'll, I'll say it. They, they peaked in high school and they, they want to give someone a hard time. They want to feel you know, powerful. And that's, that's, uh, kind of another gross thing. Uh, the day of, of gross people, please don't do that. Um, please don't, don't be that kind of a person. Um, you're, you know, if you want to be out there and protecting people, if I, if I break a law, hold me to it, I'll pay the ticket that's on me. Um, but don't, don't grief someone. Don't, don't give someone a bad day just because you can, um, you know, do something that's going to protect the, uh, the public. I think we all can agree on that. As long as, as long as you're out, you know, trying to make the world a, a, a better place and not just trying to take your frustration out on civilians. I think we're all on the same page there. All right. Um, pull the, uh, ejector seat on that one. And, uh, we're, <laughs> Ejecto-cito, cuz. So we'll hit some some other topics. Uh, We ended up kind of segueing kind of straight out of rides because I I don't have much and uh, Andy doesn't have much either. Uh, So what we have, we'll save for for next week. We'll we'll save for when we actually are driving our cars again. Yes, and uh, the weather's getting (laughs) nice down here. It was 70 degrees yesterday, and uh, actually I got a picture. My my parents uh, took my 5 Series out of mothballs uh, over the weekend, 
And uh, as my dad said, uh, he blew the cobwebs out. So, uh, yes. So it's good to go and, and ready and waiting for my my trip up there whenever it may be. Um, it's good that it's getting a little little driving because it's hard on vehicles to sit. Um, like like Jeff's Mustang sat uh, and the battery died, and you know I've sat I've let you know my my Rangers has sat before and. And then, you know, I had check engine lights for O2 sensors and the bullet's about the only thing that I can leave setting and doesn't, it wouldn't give me, me trouble. Uh, but that's just luck. Um, so one thing I kind of wanted to touch on just for a couple of minutes is, you know, why, why is it that vehicles, why is it harder for them to sit than to move? Like, why is it that you can't just leave a car in a museum, uh, you know, just drain the fluids, you know, leave it in a museum and then give it fresh gas and oil, you know, why short of the lacquer in the fuel lines, is it hard on vehicles to sit? There's just not time for it. Yeah. I mean, you're not getting, you know, uh, thermal expansion. You're not getting lubrication. You're, you're developing rust and condensation and parts that would otherwise not have that where, where, Whereas heat would evaporate most of that out, that starts to become uh, an issue. Um, gaskets, uh, you know, that are designed to operate at a certain temperature and maintain pliability and have oil kind of uh, helping improve that pliability no longer have, uh, have that happening. So they, um, you know, succumb to temperature variation and, and UVs, uh, UV light in some cases and, um, you know, those, uh, start to dry and crack, um, hydraulic brake fluid, you know, is super corrosive. So brake lines corrode and, uh, you know, kind of a spiral of different things. Yeah. So, so what can people do? People that had, you know, vehicles that sit, uh, like Andy's Cobra, my bullet was that way. Uh, and you know, your vehicles get a little more rotation, but they'll still sit for a few months at a time. What are things that people can do, uh, to kind of protect their vehicles? How do you, how do you protect the, you know, from valve seals to, you know, fuel in the line to, you know, condensation getting trapped in the exhaust and, and rusting that from the inside out? Cause I had an exhaust failure, um, from that. Uh, how, how do we protect our, our collectors, our fun vehicles that we don't drive every day? How do we keep them from falling apart? I think driving, it's the biggest key, um, staying, uh, attentive to maintenance. Um, if you have the ability store them inside in a garage that is less, um, exposed to temperature changes. Um, something that's maybe a little more controlled. So those, uh, you know, those gaskets and, and those rubber lines are, are uh, seeing less um, temperature variation um, without lubrication, um, you know. And, of course, anytime you can go out and do a, uh, a start, even if you're not driving it, even a start helps. So if you can so do let anything, it, let like it that. warm up and get up, get up to temp if possible. Is that kind of a, a key to keeping the, the powertrain uh, going or is it, you know, is that going to do the job or is it more important to, 
get out and put some miles on it and, you know, keep the, the rubber of the tires, uh, you know, try and keep them around and get the condensation out of the exhaust. Um, if you start it once a month, is that enough or should you try and drive it once a month? I mean, you always should try to drive it, I think, but, um, you know, that's not always feasible for some people, you know, weather dependent and whatnot. So, um, that's a good second best option is to just start it, give it some revs, you know, give it a little bit of, uh, you know, if you, if you can hit the brakes a couple times, you know, just kind of keep things moving, get, get, you know, you're, you're at least paying attention to one mechanical component that tends to be troublesome, right? You're giving the fuel system, and, uh, you know, and the, and the cooling system, a chance to, to, um, to warm up and, and to, f- uh, move some fuel through the system, all of that kind of stuff. You're not getting to really exercise the braking system that much. Um, and you're not really getting to exercise the transmission, but you're at least helping a couple of different things. Um, you know, another thing that's important too, uh, you know, is, uh, grease and lubrication on, on rotating parts like your uh, wheel bearings and, and drive shafts and U-joints and stuff like that. Also those, that, that grease tends to um, attract moisture over time and dirt, uh, especially if it just sits there. So those, those parts uh, no longer flinging grease around uh, under use. So any, any uh, exposed areas that don't have grease on them will start to flash rust and, and, uh, and have problems down the road. So, you know, uh, to, kind of avoid that. I mean, the best thing you can do is continue to drive your car, stay up to date on maintenance. And, uh, but if, if you can't, you know, a good starter, you know, once a month is, is good. Andy, is there anything that you do to kind of keep your, your, your Cobra, um, from, from kind of having these, these, uh, ailments of, of sitting around? I try to drive it once a month or if not once every two months, if, you know, the winter here is picky choosy. You know, if there's snow, obviously I'm not taking it out. Um, or really even rain. But, you know, if it's if it's bad, you know, if it's a bad winter here, I'm going to heat cycle it once or twice a month in the garage. Um, other than that, you know, I, I try to at least drive it every month or every other month. Even if it's a short, you know, heat cycle, you know, take it, let it warm up and, you know, do a couple mile loop around the house or something. It gets everything, you know, heated up to temperature. It's cycling through, you know keeps the joints moving, gets keeps, you know, your rubber and all your seals, you know, working as they should. Um, when it's sitting in the garage, it's always on a battery tender now. Uh, but, you know, just kind of the same points Jeff hit on, really. Do you guys use, like, uh, fuel stabilizers? I don't. Most I, – I don't believe in a lot of them. Um, I've seen enough of bad things and products to stay away from them you're better off, you know, don't leave as much, you know, don't leave a full tank of gas in it and you'll actually get out and, you know, drive it or heat cycle it once a month or every other month is, is better than leaving a, a tank of gas in the car with some stabilizer. Cause that stuff eventually, you know, they say, you know, it's, it's supposed to keep it from doing this and that, but eventually that stuff all gunks up and crystallizes and just makes more of a headache. I, I, I don't believe in any, any of those, you know, stabilizers. I think it's snake oil, honestly. I, I do the stabilizers in my bike um, just because they're very sensitive to uh, the ethanol or, or gas being clogged up, uh, you know, in those uh, in those small little jets and stuff. Uh, Randy, you know all about that, I'm sure, with your mm-hmm. bikes. Um, 
but I do know my Falcon is also very sensitive to ethanol fuels. So I fill all my cars up with ethanol fuels and my carbureted cars and my fuel injected cars really don't have a big issue with it. Um, but the Falcon is probably the most temperamental with the ethanol fuel. Um, I had a period of time where I was um, getting a different heater box for the car and uh, I let it sit for about a month and a half. And that amount of time, uh, that ethanol fuel uh, plugged up the, um, the main, no, the pilot jet in the carburetor and, uh, and uh, didn't plug it up right away, but it created enough, uh, enough gummy uh, crap inside of the bowl of the, of the, call, uh, of the carb um, that when I was driving, it broke a little piece of that off um, and uh, got sucked down into the, uh, into the jet. And it um, started running really, really poorly, you know, typical old carburetor kind of issue, you know, it was like backfiring little pops, you know, running super lean. And then I got a a huge explosion and it laid open my uh, muffler, split my muffler open. Um, Big old backfire. And I think I might have been. (laughs) I remember that. Yeah. Yeah. Because you you saw me drive by. Um, I heard my... you coming a mile behind me. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> I had my work truck in traffic on 205. I hear this god-awful sound coming up from like a mile behind me. And I'm like, what in God's name is this sound? Is this some little crotch rocket, a little Honda with no muffler coming up? And here comes Jeff in the in the exit lane to hit to head towards Troutdale, just blazing along. And I was like, no friggin' way. <laughs> and then you called me and I couldn't hear you because it was so <laughs> You couldn't hear a damn thing I was saying. Nope. <laughs> it was funny because you'd rev this little car and it just had this like gnarly noise, you know, and it had no power. So nothing. No, it's completely gutless, but it sounded like it was going a million miles an hour. But, but yeah, so, uh, you know, if you're going to, I would say, you know, if, if depending on how frequently you start your car um, and, uh, you know, what size your carburetor is. I would say that would depend on what you would do with your fuel stabilizer if it is a carbureted car. If it's fuel injected, I wouldn't worry about stabilizer. But if I would run a non-ethanol gas, if it's going to sit, um, and I would do that with carbureted or uh, fuel injected. Um, but uh, generally, if you have a carbureted car and it's a four-barrel or has uh, big primary and secondary jets, something that's a little bit more uh, less fuel uh, uh, uh consumes more fuel, I should say. Um, I wouldn't worry too much about your carburetor getting gummed up from, uh, from the modern gas and I wouldn't necessarily run a stabilizer, but if you have something small, like a little slant six or a four cylinder, then I would definitely consider running some type of fuel stabilizer in addition to non-ethanol if you're going to let it sit. Um, and the fuel stabilizer I, I use, uh, is just the stable stuff cause it's where you can get at the store. And, uh, you know, I haven't had any issues with it, but, uh, I know a guy, uh, that I, I know that's a really good mechanic. He recommends, uh, stuff called Pry-G. It's supposed to be pretty good. Um, but, uh, but yeah, uh, that would be my recommendation anyway. Now, is this, is this too much for, for, uh, practicality to remove the carburetor or at least drain the float bowl? Cause I know with my motorcycles, when I'm doing my maintenance properly, and I park them for the season, I will uh, pull the, the carb and the uh, intake fuel line and I'll, I'll clean all those out 
uh, of fuel, you know, kind of run car- basically carb cleaner through them, make sure the float bowl's empty. And I don't pull all of the jets out or anything. I just pull the carb, pull the carb out, make sure that the fuel is out of the lines and just kind of blow it out and through so that there's nothing sitting in there. And then I'll reinstall it so that the next season, when I turn on the fuel petcock, it'll flow fresh fuel um, out and through the system. Now, with a with a car, I'm not saying that you should drain the tank every November. Um, but would it be out of line? You have a lot of a lot of different kind of carbureted vehicles between four barrels, and and you've dealt with side drafts and stuff. Would you think that that would be would make sense for someone who's going to leave their car parked for six months at a time only goes on the show circuit to drain the, the float bowl at least? No, um, I don't think, uh, you know, well, float bowl, um, m- maybe, uh, six months isn't a, a long time. I would say if it's ethanol fuel, uh, I wouldn't, I wouldn't ever let that stuff sit in any fuel system. Um, if you can help it, uh, unless it's a modern car, but uh, generally you're you're looking at line blowing out, drain the car, drain the tank. If you're going to store it long term, like more than a year kind of thing. Um, at that stage, like it's it's good uh, it's good uh, due diligence to just drain your tank, blow your lines out, um, you know, and uh, you know do a good oil change, let it sit, um, you know, and then when you're ready to kind of resurrect the car, um, you know, you, you have a good fresh start. And unfortunately, you know, when the carburetors sit empty, they can develop leaks. Um, just, you know, again, the gaskets are meant to have something in them, not necessarily sit empty. So it can be a problem, but generally, uh, depending on if it's a Holly Edelbrock, uh, carburetor B, whatever, um, generally they're, you know, pretty forgiving in that way. So, Any other tips for for lightly used vehicles, we'll call them? Or is it basically just, you know, it doesn't matter how far you go or how hard or gentle you drive it. If you're going to have something you don't drive all the time, just just drive it whenever you can. Just even if it's, you know, around the block twice, that's still getting, getting the, the rubber, you know, moving on the tires. It's still getting the the uh, injectors or, you know, carburetors, the, the valves are moving. Everything's getting, you know, lubricated as it should. Like you said, flash rust is something you got to worry about in certain things. And as long as you're keeping it kind of oil bathed and greased up, that's pretty much the a number one thing. There's nothing that can replicate that. Right. Well, that's some, some useful information, but, uh, I think we're getting towards the end unless uh, someone has anything else off the, you know, off the top of their head that they wanted to, uh, wanted to talk about. I'm pretty, pretty good. I think we covered pretty good amount of stuff this time. I don't think there's anything else I have for this week. We covered all the news stories I had. Uh, probably wrap it on up. Yeah. Uh, I think that's uh, probably a good idea. Um, this is the first per time I've asked for this. If you like the show, um, you can uh, you know leave us a comment, leave us a rating. Uh, iTunes is the most useful form of that. It helps us, 
you know, kind of get seen and bring more people on. The show is growing steadily, but slowly. Um, feel free to, you know, share it with uh, with anyone you know. Uh, if you have any any comments, any um, any thoughts, uh, definitely put them in the comment section or uh, go to the website, which I haven't mentioned in a while, um, tinydogpodcast.com. Or directly to my email for the show, tinydogpodcastnetwork at outlook.com. And uh, keep checking out the Instagram, and I'll keep uh, updating it with uh, with our projects as they come along. Mostly Jeff's Bronco at the moment. Uh, I'll be putting more stuff up in the next couple of days and as it, as it uh, finishes up. Um, so, uh, if anyone has any, any, uh, last thoughts or plugs, now would be the time. Keep up to date on your registration on your cars. That's my <laughs> one piece of advice. <laughs> Ditto that I'm in the process of getting the Cobra done right now. So excellent. Uh, and from, uh, all of us here at the network, we're going to go ahead and, uh, call it a night. Good night. Night. Good night. Thank you for listening to the Garage Night Podcast. A special thanks for Jeff Tracy and Annie Tamlin for joining the show this week. Until next week, keep turning wrenches.